2, and I'm going to do 1 through 13. But the Genesis is correct. The Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in his own language. <clears throat> Utterly amazed, they asked, are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? Parthians, mm, Medes, Medes, <laughs> and oh, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya near Cyrene. Visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they have had too much wine. Then we have Genesis 11, 1 through 9. The Tower of Babel. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As the men moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower that the men were building. The Lord said, if as one people speak in the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. That is why it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. Word of our Lord. This is a Pentecost text. Last week was Pentecost Sunday. I told you that last week. And uh, I, want, I want to look at this text. I, it's a great text. And uh, <clears throat> most of the time when people look at Acts 2, they also look at Genesis 11 because they really kind of represent opposite ends of the same communication spectrum. You have the people at Babel having their languages confused, and the people in Jerusalem on Pentecost suddenly all understanding what these people were saying. Um, Joel prophesied this. Not Joel Shade, but Joel the prophet. Joel said in Joel 2.28, Afterward, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your daughters shall prophesy, 
Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female slaves is though in those days I will pour out my spirit. Wow. Joel's already talking about it. Joel's already setting the stage for what God was up to, what God had in mind. Um, added to this is what Jesus told his disciples. This is in Acts 1, before the text that Amanda read to us. Um, while, while staying with the disciples, Jesus ordered them to not leave Jerusalem. Stay here, he said. Pretty pointed instruction on the part of Jesus. Wait here for the power of the Father. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. Now, I think that probably as clearly as anywhere hooks up the Spirit of God and God's mission, which is for everybody to participate in the gospel, in the good news. Those two things hook up. Some traditions appear to make the Holy Spirit the end of this proposition. Oh, I've got the Holy Spirit. This is the thing I've wanted my whole life. I, I speak in tongues or I do this, that, or the other. But I don't think that's, that's the outcome that God wanted. I think what God was wanting, what Jesus says to his disciples is, I want you to wait in Jerusalem for the power that God will send you through his Spirit. And with that event, you will become witnesses to the whole earth. They go hand in hand. The Spirit serves a function. The Spirit has a mission to complete. Now, I want you to think about that. Just let me let that thought kind of hang in your mind. The Spirit has a mission to complete. The Bible has some rather clear statements uh, of mission, which is important as we're talking about this. Luke 24, on the third day, Messiah will rise from the dead and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed in Jesus' name to all the nations. Beginning at Jerusalem. Indeed, that's what happened. It began in Jerusalem, but it didn't stay there. You know, the Jews, with their limited vision of what God was up to, thought that that was just going to be uh, kind of another chapter in what they had been living. But it's not. I am sending upon you what my Father promised. Stay here until you've been clothed with power. John 15. When the Advocate comes, whom I will send to you from my Father, the Spirit of Truth, he will testify on my behalf. The advocate, the spirit, Greek word is paraclete, and sometimes people use that word. The paraclete, this thing that God is sending us. 
He will testify to you on my behalf. You also are to testify because you have been with me from the beginning. So you're going to be doing the same work as the Spirit does in testifying about Jesus. And then Acts 1. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses. You will receive power from the Spirit, and you will, receive, you will be my witnesses, hand in hand. So it's clearly stated that God has something in mind, and it goes all the way back to Joel. God's up to something. God has something in mind. There's something that God wants from us. And He's equipped us through His Spirit to do that work. I think I've told you this story before, but I'll tell it again. Uh, in in uh, London, there is a, a church. Uh, it's called uh, something, holy something, Brompton. Brompton's an area of of London, and this, it's a, it's a Church of England church, so you think of stately, high church kind of worship and that sort of thing, and this church became the center of this powerful fervor for sharing the good news with people, and they did it by having these, they would have these about 10 session uh, weekly dinners at their church and it would be informal food it'd be spaghetti it'd be stuff like that and they would invite people to come and they would fill up their fellowship room with people who wanted to, to come and investigate what what they were talking about they would eat this meal and they would have some worship and then they would have a little little speech about that night's installment of this whole 10-week thing. And then they would break up into, well, they, in their group. And they stayed with that group through the whole 10 weeks. They would talk about what they just heard. Now, they had atheists in there. They had people across the spectrum. About two-thirds of the way through this 10-week thing, they had a retreat. When I first heard this, I thought, that's, that's really strange. Here you've got these people that are complete strangers. And you're going to have a retreat? But sure enough, they did. I don't know if it was one or two nights, but they took the people away. And they said, uh, you know, we, we really, we want you to to become disciples of Jesus. And so these people who are from all walks of life with all sorts of experience, with all sorts of problems, are saying things like, how on earth am I going to do that? Look at the mess my life is. I can't do that. This was the brilliance of this retreat because they said to them, yes, you can. That's the whole point of God giving you his spirit is to help you in this walk, to give you uh, the voice, the desire, the, the, the ability to live out 
this calling. God has something in mind. Holy Trinity Brompton was the name of it. And they were telling people, basically, God has something in mind. God is up to something. This is what God is doing. So you start to see the, the dream of God unfold right, out, right after Pentecost. And it starts pretty fast. First of all, there, there's a persecution and it drives these people that had been there in that Jerusalem audience out to other places in the world. So there's this expansion. They didn't do it themselves, but it was still an expansion. And so they went everywhere and they would see people, they would talk to their neighbors. Hey, guess what happened to me? Let me tell you about what I've heard. Expectation of this was, was kind of, of God's mission, that is, was, was really part of the mood of the disciples. They were asking questions. They asked questions of Jesus before uh, his ascension. Hey, we, we've got some questions. What about this kingdom thing? When's that going to happen? They thought it was going to be a political kingdom, and so they're asking questions like, is, is the, are the Jews going to have their, their capital back? Are we going to be able to be self-governed? Is that what God's doing? Of course, it wasn't. But they knew something was about to happen. Don't you wish we had that kind of naive faith? Maybe naive's the wrong word, but that kind of simple faith to, to believe enough in God's presence in our life and God's work in the world to be able to have this expectation that there's, there's something going to happen. What's God up to? When our children were young, um, well, when we lived in Minnesota, uh, Angela's best friend lived about two doors down, three doors down from our house. And they bred Schnauzer puppies. And they sold them for quite a lot of money. And uh, Angela loved going down to Bobby Jean's house and playing with the little dogs and all of that. So we moved to, to Kentucky, and uh, we lived on a cul-de-sac, and one of the people in our cul-de-sac on our street was a deacon at the church I worked at. <coughs> and uh, one day I was over at his house, and he had this <coughs> scroungy black dog, hairy, unkempt, backyard dog. And I said, what kind of dog is that? Schnauzer. Really? It was a male. He said, yeah. He said, uh, about once a year I take him over to uh, a professor at uh, uh, Murray State University and, and breed. I allow my dog to breed to his dog. And uh, he gives me $100, the breeding fee. And so I start thinking about that. I said, hey, could I pay you the breeding fee? Because $100 for a purebred schnauzer, would, it, that's a, almost a giveaway. It, I mean, that's cheap. 
He said, yeah. And, and so you'll get pick of the litter? Yeah. yeah. So, so we did that. So um, we didn't tell our kids what we were doing. Uh, we knew that having a schnauzer puppy was like kind of the top thing that could ever happen to you in the world if you could have a schnauzer. And uh, so the female got pregnant and finally delivered this little litter of puppies and I kind of kept in touch with the, the owner, uh, the, 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 the guy that bred her. And uh, so on the day when the puppies were nine weeks old, I went over to the house of this professor to pick up our puppy. And so I got to pick from the whole litter, pick of the litter. And uh, I come home with the dog that came to have the name of Jandy. Well, leading up to this, Bev, Bev had been putting little notes in their school lunches. Something good's gonna happen this week. And the kids are going crazy. What's gonna happen? Well, I can't tell you, but it's gonna be good. And this led up to the day that I, I went to get the dog. Bev had them on, sitting on the couch. And uh, I walk in and over, over them, I drop this little tiny nine week old puppy. It was like Vesuvius going on. A puppy, a schnauzer. <laughs> and I'm telling you that story because I, I think that's, that's really kind of the expectation, the kind of joy that exists with these disciples. It, they know that, that God has been up to something. They know that Jesus told them to get ready because something really great was going to happen in their, in their life. They didn't know what that meant. They didn't know what P Pentecost was going to be like. Uh, so you can just imagine how this, this group of now 11 apostles, there's 120 disciples in all, and you can imagine what happened to them on that day of Pentecost when this vast multitude of people were gathered and this mighty wind comes through the through the hallway and these tongues of fire and I don't know what that looked like and this this thing that they couldn't explain that the audience is understanding in their own language what these disciples what Peter was saying to them Luke says there were devout Jews from every nation under heaven living in Jerusalem. Well, that's when things started to change. Um, however, it, this is not surprising. It's, it's really not surprising. When you look back and you look at the sweep of history, you look at what God's been up to. Uh, Jesus' genealogy his family tree has got Rahab, who's a prostitute, 
a Gentile. Um, uh, Ruth. Ruth's a Moabite woman. She's not a Jew. She happens to live with a Jewess who was, was her mother-in-law, but her husband's now dead. A Moabite woman stands in the line of Jesus. And, and then there was Tamar. Tamar was this, she was part of Judaism, but she was this woman who, whose father, her father-in-law had the, let me back up and say that a, a man uh, married his wife and her, her biggest desire in life was to give him a male heir. Because in Judaism, that was how they, they saw themselves achieving sort of e eternal life of sorts, was on the heirs that you passed off. And her, that first husband died, and so it was the obligation of the next brother to provide her a male heir who would be named after the first guy. Doesn't seem fair, does it? And eventually, I guess she ran out of heirs. I can't remember all the details of the story, but, but her father-in-law was not helpful to her, was not responsible to her. And so one day she dresses as a prostitute and she goes into the city square and she has relations with her father-in-law and she asks him to give her his ring and pledge for something that he said he would do for her. So later she's out here with child and uh, she presents herself to her father-in-law and she says, pay up, big guy. I'm the one, your daughter-in-law, because you didn't do what you were supposed to do. She's in the line of Jesus. Wouldn't you think that the line of Jesus would be just the most pristine list of of people, the stellar people of the, of the land at the time? You would think, wouldn't you? That's not the way God works. So there's all of that as history, and then now Pentecost has happened. Philip, who was one of the, the early disciples, left Jerusalem because of that persecution, and... Uh, he goes to Samaria. These were enemies of the Jews. They hated Samaritans. Uh, Philip then goes toward, uh, toward Ethiopia, down the road that you would take, the highway that you would take to Ethiopia, and he encounters this eunuch. And a eunuch had no rights in the temple, none. And yet he becomes a Christian, and then there's Peter and Cornelius. And that, that blanket that completely ruined 
Peter's life. He, he just, it just made a mess of everything that he had in this neat box. And then there's the conversion. The church in Antioch is all Gentiles or mostly Gentiles, and it causes all kinds of headaches for the Jews in Jerusalem. I, I love this story, and I love this, this picture that we get of this God that said, this is what I want. This is what I'm up to. And then this morning, I, I got to thinking about this. Um, Matthew 18 is a whole chapter about, about reconciliation, about overcoming wrongs with each other, about how to communicate with each other when times become stressful. And in verse 6, you get, you get this important insight into the mind of God and what God's thinking about us. And he, he pronounces a woe against anybody that creates a stumbling block that causes another person to veer off, to say, well, if that's what it's all about, I don't... Jesus says, you better not do that. You better not do that. It would be better if you had a millstone tied around your neck and you're cast into the depths of the sea. You know, millstones were those big round things that they sometimes put in front of tombs. So pretty massive. Can you imagine having that tied around your neck? God says that's, I think that gives us a really good picture of the passion and the interest that God has in everybody. Nobody excluded. You've got Rahab's in there, you've got Ruth's in there, you've got Tamar's in there, you've got Ethiopian eunuchs running around in the temple courts with complete freedom. You've got Gentiles that provided this huge theological problem for the early church. God says, <laughs> that's my people. So I, I think, to finish, um, yeah, that's coming up. I think that This is an if-then argument, which we'll talk about in a little while, but if you think that the Spirit of God is in you, hold on to that thought. I'm assuming you believe that. I don't think you'd be here if you didn't believe that. The Spirit of God is within you. Early church knew what God wanted, knew what God was up to. Um, I can tell you that I, I, I do not think that, that much of Christendom bears any resemblance to that. I really don't. So disillusioned by what I see out there. 
Tom Long tells a story. I, I love this story. Tom teaches preaching at Princeton. And he says on Pentecost Sunday, he was, uh, he was teaching a, a baptism class, and the only people, there were no adults who had showed up for this, and the only two people were these two little girls. And so on Pentecost Sunday, Tom Long says, uh, do you know what Pentecost is? They didn't. What you would expect. So Long says, I said, well, Pentecost was when the church was seated in a circle and tongues of fire came down from heaven and landed on their heads and they spoke in the gospel all the languages of the world. The two girls took that rather calmly, but one of them, got her eyes got as big as saucers, and when she could finally speak, she says, Reverend Long, we must have been absent that Sunday. I, I love that. I think that we should long for the energy and the focus that the Spirit brought to the church. But, but so often what you see is indifference and disconnect. But that won't bring God's kingdom. That's not what, what God wants to see from us. So here's the if-then. In an if-then argument, you say, if this is true, then this is true. Right? If-then. If we have been given the Spirit, if we believe that, then what manifestations of the Spirit's presence do you think we will have? No, I'm not talking about tongue speaking and all of that. I'm talking about manifestation of the Spirit in light of God's mission, in light of why the Spirit was given us. What kind of passion burns within you? What kind of what kind of thoughts dance around in your mind as you think about where your life intersects all of this? On this Pentecost Sunday, I, I think this, these, are, these are great ways to approach our own uh, discipleship, our own longing to be purveyors of the gospel, the good news, as well as to be people that are very mindful of the impact that we have on the lives of other people. Let's pray. Oh God, on this Pentecost or last Pentecost Sunday, we pray for the filling of your spirit. We pray with a consciousness of this. May our minds be turned to the mission you establish for your people and which the spirit inspires and empowers. May we not become indifferent to the wide world around us, but rather be a place like Antioch, a great man magnet for those who are searching for you. In Jesus' name we pray this. Amen.